0: Yeah, she. I guess you showed me a picture there, Steve. Yeah, but, I uh, did. That mm-hmm. was yeah, yeah, cute lady. And yeah. then uh, the more somber song. I don't know. I'm just in more of an upbeat mood today. Mm-hmm. So that's fair. If I just broke up with a girlfriend, that might be <laughs> more to me. But uh,
1: yeah,
2: and I think at first uh, first link is Chinese song. Mm, okay. okay. And second is mm-hmm. and Third one is beast Exact yeah. opposite. Ooh. Exact opposite. I think our, I think. I think
0: Hyun is just more about the ladies. You know. Yeah. <laughs> no, ladies that's fair. Um, in response to what Evan said, though, I think we're gonna have to take this outside, bro. Yeah. Oh,
3: we're gonna have to duke it out.
0: Yeah. Is that you? Yeah, I don't know. If she ever ends up hearing this, let me just say, we love you. We love you. We all love you. Anyway, yeah, keep doing the good music. Yeah, That's actually going to do it for this week's Asian Wave 101. Tune back in next week when we check out some more music and some more news. Don't forget that Asian Wave 101 does have its own podcast available on CITR.ca. Coming up next is the weekly arts report. Jake is coming in here bringing a couple of guests, talking about some of the good stuff in the arts scene. For CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver on unceded Musqueam territory... On the University of British Columbia campus, this has been Asian Wave One Hundred and One. I am your host, Steve. Thank you for joining me this afternoon. Until next time, everyone. We got our special Canadian artist of the week to play us out. Thank you, Evan. Thank you, Hyun. And see you all.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: See you all next time, everyone. Peace.
5: It's the J R E Y E Z. <laughs> There's going to be some stuff you're going to see That's going to make it hard to smile in the future But through whatever you see Through all the rain and the pain You got to keep your sense of humor You got to be able to smile through all this bullshit Remember that Yeah And um if we don't make it to the top, we gon' try again, and we ain't never gon' stop. We gon' try again. My girl looking bad, I see her looking mad. What we strive for is what you coulda had. Enjoying life every day without giving a fuck. Appreciating everything you can get for a buck, and we gon' live life, cruise on the highway. I do this all day, and I do it my way. Quit my job last year, do this new grind. Doing my thing every day, music full time, and I distill my rhymes with that moonshine. You can't take away this love with Maroon 5. Sometimes I wonder what's love with the Shanti Remembering those days in the basement Trying to record while my mom's doing laundry Am I your favorite? Why do they want me? I'm traveling the world, different kind of cities I'm really glad that I'm getting kind of busy It's hard to get through these obstacles But my goal's looking clear through these obstacles If we don't make it to the top, we gon' try again And we ain't never gon' stop, we gon' try again My girl looking bad, I see you looking mad What we strive for is what you coulda had If we don't make it to the top, we gon' try again And we ain't never gonna stop, we gon' try again My girl looking bad, I see you looking mad What we strive for, it's what you coulda had them bad bitches saying, damn me fly Yo, yeah, but like big butts and I cannot lie I'm a boss but this job's not hiring Sorry ho but you don't fit the requirements I'm fueling off the hate, my music siphoning You can't take away this pain using Vicodin Training the gym, getting my bars up And success close by and I'm not far from it My team is the cast, they're gonna be star-studded My alarm's going off, when did I start buzzing? I'm sprinting on this track, when did I start running? Getting a little lost, wondering where the sun is because there ain't enough shine on my teammates. This another step for all of us to be great. You can't see straight if you ain't recognized. And stop trying to climb. It's better you step aside. If we don't make it to the top, we gon' try again. And we ain't never gon' stop. We gon' try again. My girl looking bad. I see you looking mad. What we strive for is what you could have had. If we don't make it to the top, we gon' try again. And we ain't never gon' stop. We gon' try again. My girl looking bad. I see you looking mad. What we strive for is what you could have had. It's what you could have (laughs) had. Yeah. Jay Reezy.
6: You're listening to CITR 101.9, broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional. Unseated, Coast
7: Salish territory of the Hongkameenam-speaking Musqueam people.
4: Have you
8: voted in the 2015 Metro Vancouver Transportation and Transit plebiscite? Elections BC must receive your completed ballot package before 8 p.m. on Friday, May 29th. Or voters can drop off their completed ballot package before the close of voting at any plebiscite service office in Metro Vancouver. For more information, call Elections BC at 1-800-661-8683 or visit elections.bc.ca slash plebiscite. This message is brought to you by Elections BC.
0: North by Northeast, Toronto's festival destination for emerging musicians and major label headliners. Where else can you see and discover over hundreds of bands? NXNE, featuring Action Bronson, The New Pornographers, Best Coast, and many more. June 17th through the 21st, one of the most anticipated events of the summer takes over Toronto. This is is one event you won't want to skip. AMS Food Bank. Your access to money during the studies at UBC will most likely be limited, but it is a priority of the AMS Food Bank to ensure your access to food is not. The AMS Food Bank provides emergency food relief seven days a week for all UBC students. To volunteer with the Food Bank or for inquiries about how to take advantage of the services provided, contact them at foodbank.com at ams.ubc.ca For more information, find the AMS Food Bank on Facebook or feel free to visit anytime across from the Wellness Centre and Sprouts.
9: Hello and welcome. You are tuned in to CITR 101.9 FM from unceded Musqueam territories out at UBC and you are listening to The Arts Report. It is May 27th and uh, our last show in May and we have got a packed show today. Uh, We're going to start things off with a feature interview with Trevor Mills whose um, latest rap album or hip-hop album addresses the untimely death of his brother and the stigma associated with mental illness. Um, After that, reporter Sarah Barr interviews Rebecca Maleses, uh, who is the producer of the documentary film Iris, which takes a look at the fashion icon Iris Apfel um uh we also have reporter Andy who's bringing us uh his first review with the Arts Report. Uh and he went to go see God in the Indian which is playing now at Firehall Arts um until the end of the month. And as well Christine Kim is going to join us in um with a interview over the phone with the artistic director of Big Bad which is a contemporary reworking of the classic fairy tale um of Little Red Riding Hood which is running at the Vancouver Children's Festival right now. Uh, but to start things off, um, let's hear about Trevor Mills. Trevor Mills lost his older brother um, to a years-long battle with mental illness. As part of his healing process, uh, Trevor wrote and recorded his album, Evidence of a Struggle, with, which sees its release tomorrow night at the Rio Theatre. Um, Proceeds of the album are going to um, Vancouver General Hospital, the Seagull Foundation, which is uh, helping fight the stigma associated with mental illness. And uh, this week I sat down with Trevor to talk about his experience and the album. Trevor Mills is a high school teacher, counselor, basketball and rugby coach, and hip-hop artist. His latest EP, Evidence of a Struggle, will see its release at the Rio Theatre this Thursday, May 28th. The album addresses some of the stigmas associated with mental health issues and the challenges one can face navigating our public health system. Uh, This is something that Trevor saw firsthand with his brother, who took his own life after years of struggling with uh, mental health issues. The album Evidence of a Struggle is described as honest, inspiring hip-hop that shines a light on the humanity of mental illness. Trevor joins us in studio. And for full disclosure, um, we have some common family members. My dad is married to um, Trevor's aunt.
10: Correct, correct.
6: Step-cousins. Step-cousins, yeah.
9: Step-cousins,
6: starring Will Ferrell.
9: (laughs) I think it's coming out next summer, yeah. Uh, Welcome to the Arts Report on CITR.
6: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me out.
9: Uh, Tell us uh, about the album.
6: So the album was officially started in the summer of 2012, um, following the untimely death of my big brother. Um, Being uh, a hip-hop artist, I immediately gravitated towards that for my catharsis, for my therapy. Um, for my way of making sense of things, making sense of the unexplainable and and the confusion that follows um, a suicide. So the album was all written in succession, actually, from track one to seven um, on there. And initially, I didn't know that it would be the stages of grieving. But as I started growing through um, the aftermath of this, it started jumping out at me and I saw the parallels And I decided that I wanted to bring the listener beside me while I was, or or give them that insight into what I was experiencing. So um, one of my good friends, Terry Perdido, introduced me to uh, Savage Beats um, down at Beats and Bikes. On the downtown east side, he runs a storefront which fixes bikes and sells beats. So him and I teamed up and I began writing um, five of the seven songs uh, from uh, from his beats. Um, and then the other additional songs were by Jason DeCudo who's a close friend of mine um, the track More Than a Moment features um, students from my high school Max Mayer, Simon New, Eva Stolberg, and Emma J, uh, who I worked with on that um, but it all came in succession and each song after Reflection carried a certain stage of that so it took just over a year and a bit to write and record and get the vision for each track. And then came, what are we gonna do with it once it was packaged? Mm-hmm. So that was the, the creative process of it. it. was about 13 months following the death of my brother and then um, the, the creation of that, um, and then getting into the Kickstarter about funding this. Um,
9: now you, you've gone the crowdfunding uh, method with Kickstarter.
6: What kind of, uh, what's the support been like that you've received? You know, um, it's been unbelievable, really, what uh, what came from that. And I was absolutely terrified to release that spoken word and that video, but I knew it needed to be done, but I was unsure of what the reception would be like and needing to be uh, sensitive to all the parties involved because this wasn't just me experiencing this grief, right? This was, I'm, I'm from a... A large family who also valued um my brother immensely he meant a lot to everybody so that was the crowdfunding route was um a difficult one but I just decided to be real you know and I, I've, I'm a firm believer in that the more we share um with each other the more compassionate we can be the more we know about each other the more compassionate we be so in the spirit of full disclosure I said you know this was this is what was up and um you know, so I put that in the video captured by Evan Parsons and, and Aaron Salzar um, in our my old neighborhood on uh, on Main Street. and the reception went really well. I had a number of people just sharing very personal things with me and saying thank you, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being another person that that understands what this is. and I think that the video did capture. The pain that w- that we experienced and the, and the confusion and the frustration that, that comes with this. And the number is 500 a year that take their lives in B.C., which is an alarming number, really. So um, sharing my experience through the crowdfunding, I think, did um, did connect with people. They did see that this was an authentic, sincere project that, that they wanted to be a part of. And um, so that was, yeah. That was a special experience
9: it is a, a, a really emotional video to, to watch and um, perhaps we'll, we'll get some audio from it in, in a little bit but um, what when I you mentioned earlier how it um, it's not just your experience it's your families and, and everyone going through is it scary to, um, to kind of to go through this process in, in a creative way like you have and, and to share that with with other people going through that,
6: yeah, to to be so public about it is is scary, and um, you know, being sensitive to to my family's experiences is is number one for me. It's uh, it's something I've consulted them throughout. Uh, is this something you're comfortable with? Um, even with his like his close homies, I have to say, you know, is this is this cool? Is this is this uh, you know? And then at the same time, I got to value myself and my experiences with it and uh, that he was always supportive of my hip-hop. He was always supportive. He was the guy, most shows, my, my bro was there. And um, if he wasn't, he was extremely apologetic that he, he couldn't make it. So he was he was very invested in it. Um, but definitely going public with something like this, you're, you're vulnerable to hurt, you're vulnerable to um, any number of, of cruel comments that, we know does come from putting yourself out there. But at the same time, with someone explained to me, when you're vulnerable, you're also open to so much love, mm-hmm. right? And you can receive that. And thankfully that was, the, it, that was what I received from this is just, just love from people. And I'm, I'm trying to extend that and show my gratitude with, with what, uh, what we're doing at the Rio on, on Thursday, you know, is trying to put that out there and share the shine with, with the whole camp that, that came out and supported this.
9: Now um I'd like to to play something just talking about support talking about the 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 amount of people who have come out with this project there's you included your students. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you teach it at Kitsilano Secondary and will tell us about that.
6: Yeah, so um this is my my 7th year at Kits High and it's a very special school in Vancouver. It's got a rich uh hip hop um history there. We have Uh, Vancouver Legends, you know, Prevail, um, Emotions, Uh, we got Aero, um, we got a a lot of heads have come out of kits, and um, I started a hip-hop club with some students in grade nine, shouts to Simon New and Max Mayer from Thoughtwatch, and um, as well some other students were coming out, and we we started building um, and doing songs, and these guys started doing shows, and they just hit the ground running. Um, so it was natural that, because um, I had to take a leave from work following this, I was—I just wanted to focus on myself. So I was away for for a few months from my work, and when I did reconnect with the students, who I did the hip hop club, they—I like, bumped into them. The street, they're like, "Mills, man, when are you getting back to work? We need to—we need to get on the hip hop club. We need to, you know, we miss you there." And it was so heartwarming to hear from them, uh, and it was exactly what I needed to hear, and I, and I was missing out. So. um, Max shopped me some of his new beats that he was working on and he gave me this one beat Sad replicas that I heard and I was like that's exactly where I'm at right now so uh, Max Simon and I started writing and we created this song and Emma J uh, sang the hook and she I believe was in grade 9 at the time and it was a really really dope I wrote the hook she sang it and it was just, just dope and uh, Eva Stolberg um, was kicking it and she did a couple songs um, with the group and I thought it was really important that Eva be featured on this as well. So we remixed because the song was initially um, put out on Thought Watch's uh, first album, and I also wanted to include it on this EP. So this is a bit of a remix of it featuring Eva Stolberg, and uh, she just knocks it out of the park. Um, uh, she starts off the the song with it with a verse, and um, yeah, and we got uh, Max and, and Sy- Max on the. Uh, the mixing tip and beat making tip who brought it to life so yeah that was that's how that came about and um it was nice to have students at the school involved in it so
9: well uh, let's take a listen and so um performing on on this track are students from Kitsilano High
6: yeah
1: When you left, I didn't know you wouldn't come back I check my clock every day I'm like this, always tongue-tied why I'm hoping that this piece is enough For the both of us This music gets me through, but you're not Like the most of us You could've left a note or something for me to remember Instead, I'm left with memories that faded by December Place a stone on your memory Cause a flower dies sooner. Row, did you even know all the people at your funeral? I rap about my future, but my heart still knows my past You're my legacy through music Now there's something that will last My life is spinning fast I'm just waiting for the crash i can keep my head up while i'm picking up the trash i'm making moments last with thoughts to myself and then i'm screaming them out i can't steal this any longer your mind force must get out crank the volume even louder and just let it flow through it's unpredictable just I'm passionate too i know one day i'll forget about today but for now i hope my music can just pave me away pave me away
7: Hit the ceiling Did I make the moves I needed? Did I let out all this in me? Taking down nothing in secret? Would I take my blaze of glory? Nobody could say this for me If tomorrow ended up the final chapter of my story I was thinking, if my death I couldn't decide it If I had all that I built taken away while I was riding I hear the ambulance sirens, thank God that I'm not inside it Because I don't want to leave behind nothing but never tried it Efforts just left in us, prepping us for replicas Expected from the best of us, that's why that I've accepted us I'm not afraid of fading, if I have something to say Then no, I'll say it I never hold my peace, I'm gonna lay it even if I leave a carcass I'ma hold it then regardless, this legacy is my land this music is how I mark it, to be honest That's why I'm not afraid of death I'll be immortal with the pen until I draw my last breath
11: Food for this breath left That's why I rest less Desire to express fresh That's how it's said best Compressing the left chest Blessed in the best sense Anticipate the next step Creating chaos Sleep is a seance Heartbeats, blood and breath Make the canvas I paint on Reminisce on what went by, still can't revive no matter how hard we try, the moment slides by. My life span's in the wrinkles of my right hand. Changes direction from a roll of the dice, man. But never can erase the impressions the past makes. Scars from bad breaks, traits working to worsen a burden our fate. I'm lost in thought, reminiscing on the past we've walked. Can't get back Any of the people we lose. I'm making music, it's the medium, I'm reaching them through.
6: There it is.
9: That's a, a really powerful track.
6: Yeah. Uh, thanks. I um, I think uh, you know, we laid it down the framework down together and that's, uh, that's a really special track. So that'll be um, number five on the on the album. So featuring Thought Watch, Eva Stolberg and Emma J.
9: Um, so a lot of this is coming out of the the hip hop club at, um, at Kitsilano secondary and um what what power does hip hop have um for well what what power does hip hop have
6: yeah i think um one of the things that I, I see it as as a culture and as a as a i suppose genre of music is is it's responsive it's it's resourceful it's uh using who you are and where you are um and being fresh, constantly um, growing and evolving as a purpose, as a person, and that's something that I see um, unique hip hop that, that speaks to me is this is what I was experiencing at the time. This were, these were my resources available. This is where I was, and that's why it came out this way, featuring these people and this, uh, you know, and that tone and that theme and concept.
9: I guess it's something that's also highly collaborative and and highly um sort of improvisational too
6: yeah it, it can be that's that's certainly uh one of the values that i um I honor in it as well is is you know if, if with improv and freestyling is is saying saying what you're feeling at the time saying you know feel how you feel when you feel it, right.
9: Now, uh, uh, you mentioned the video that you shot for evidence of a struggle uh, in your neighborhood off Main Street. Um, I'd like to play that audio right now.
6: When you're spending on mental health, you're investing in mental wealth. The system is seen as everyone for themselves. I could say that for certain because I've been there myself. Dodged a couple bullets just to get here myself.
11: But looking out now puts a smile on my face Cause for the past couple of years I was screaming in space
6: The louder I yelled, the more that it swelled And all I was hoping for was someone would help Identify the symptoms, start treating the source Now I got our memories in a cremated corpse Is that something you feel?
11: Should I apologize when I wrapped that reel? Cause I held that steel, pulled myself back before my fate got
6: sealed Don't feel whole, just one of my soul Cause losing him was like losing my limbs Set up right now isn't set up to win My heart was shattered and every memory gathered was scattered across the sky like stars in dark matter. Applause. After the pause, that was the
11: outcome. What was the cause? Threats, deaths, a genetic predisposition, a fascination with death? Well, if we know that, what's the next logical step? The paradox is how you treat the untreatable. How is that feasible? I suppose it's not reasonable if I rhyme to your reasons, but your reasons don't rhyme right. Cause
6: for the past 12 months, my family's been living in hindsight, reading under a blind light. watch a slow motion car crash, cause Doc's waited for when the time's right. That don't work for me. That only caused hurt for me. I know he wasn't easy, but my brother was worth the work for me. And your family is worth the work for me. So roll up your sleeves and get down with the dirt for me. Cause nothing but action is gonna dilute the hurt for me.
9: themes with the album is is a lot of the um the challenges of of navigating our, our the mental health system in in um well here in b c and I think a lot of mental health systems are might be similar what are some of the fa- uh, challenges that people face
6: you know and the preface for this is there are so many amazing people working in this field and and it is never a knock when i'm when I speak on this um The difficulty is, one thing is, due to the Mental Health Act and the confidentiality associated with working with a mentally ill adult, is all the pillars cannot properly be involved. And in my family's case, we were not included in my brother's discharge from uh, a facility, which we felt when we had him there, you know, he was being assessed, things were going quite well. And then the next day we go to visit and he's discharged and we don't know. And there's no phone call. There was no inclusion happening, um, which we felt would have been extremely beneficial. So that's one thing right there is um, it's up to the doctors right now to disclose. Um, If they were up to the patient as you know, and someone who's already who may be unwell at the time and certified at the time might not be making the decisions that are best for them as much as we want to respect people's uh, individual rights and their privacy but what we feel to have a strength-based approach when you do have a family that's willing to be involved and there is a good relationship in place that should be assessed so that's one thing immediately that i feel needs to be addressed and 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 i think would prevent a lot of deaths in that that alone um at the others the other thing is when you do see Um, the behaviors of a loved one or, you know, a friend, anyone you you care about starting to change starting to be concerning yourself with, you're concerned with, with self-harm or um, things that may seem like a psychotic episode is creeping in, um, extreme paranoia and, um, you know, certain symptoms that, you know, you might, you know, start to identify and start to concern you. You don't always know where to go, you know, and I don't think what I would like to see happen as a result of this is just having a, a clear path for what to do. Just like if you're, you know, if you're sick, you go to the emergency room, but it's not always it's not always as straightforward. And that's something that I learned that it's not because um, people can pull themselves together, and you know, you can, uh, you know, not always appear to the public the same way you appear to your family or, or behind closed doors. So. I think there are a lot of people suffering in silence, and I think it can be difficult, or I know it, it is difficult, getting someone the, the treatment that they need uh, when they need it. Um,
9: I, I've heard it described before that mental health, just like physical health, is is a spectrum more than, you know, like if you think of being mentally well or mentally unwell, it's a spectrum just as your physical health is. Um, what options do people have if, if they are... Uh, experiencing in themselves or in others um, behavior the that, that is
6: suspicious you know the first uh, the first points of contact uh, in my experience have been uh, well the, the your, your general practitioner is someone that you need to see and the better relationship you have with them uh, the more likely you you are to to be uh, to be treated and the more transparent you can be um, so that's the first place to make an appointment if something is acute um, there is uh, there is always the ambulance there is always um, uh, the police or the emergency room unfortunately they're not always trained, there, there's one car car 87 um, which is uh, a mental health worker with a police officer and a social worker um, and that's a fanta- that's a fantastic uh, resource and it's something we need more of in the city because they're stretched so thin, so I think that there's a lot of positive things that we're seeing they just need that funding they need that support and they need to be valued uh because so often the police themselves just end up being the first responder to an episode and it's not really fair on them they're not they're not equipped or trained to to deal with that um and that's when we see these untimely deaths um so i think the more um things at car 87 we can see the more outreach we can see from um from these existing resources, like the South Hill mental health team um, cart um, you know various others that the more support that we can give them and recognition you know and, and we can make a louder advocacy for them uh, to receive funding and and, uh, and hire more more workers, I think we'd be better off
9: it's it's not a easy thing for people to talk about um, in in wellness or in um or in times of need, what kind of conversations would you like to see people have with themselves and with their friends and, and family about mental health
6: I think um, with themselves definitely um, having having ref- reflecting on your mood and, and, and how you're feeling and, and asking yourself um, am I taking time for myself am i am I being kind to myself and doing all the things I need to be at my best and to be my best self. And I think when experiencing, um, depression or anxiety, um, looking at the cause, looking at your diet, looking at, um, the amount of sleep you're getting, uh, cause often those can be some of the first things contribute to it that contribute to those, um, to those experiences but also um, being around people that make you feel good and, and looking at your circle as well of who you're associating with and seeing if there's any connection between, um, between how you're feeling. So I think asking yourself those questions. Um, and uh, with others, I think, just trying to contribute to others' happiness. You know, y- there is, um, you know, when, when one of the things we have in our class is what you would do if you knew a friend was experiencing depression and what are some of the ways you could you could help them. And it's, you know, coming over with video games or sharing, um, just spending time and listening, I think is one of the best things you can do and uh, and take it from there. You don't want to be an amateur psychologist necessarily, so you want to know, and it just comes into being a good friend and being a kind person, and I think starting there, you know, and still giving people the time of day. It's the simple, simple things. Um, and
9: that's something that everyone can do. Yeah,
6: exactly. Uh, well, let's get to some more of the music. What sure. uh,
9: what track should we hear that will be um, will be released on Thursday? I would
6: really like to uh, share a track, Breathe. Uh, the beat is by Devin Alexander, featuring a good friend of mine and a mental health outreach worker, uh, Tom Pryor. He's a counsellor that I met while working at a uh, another replacement uh, earlier. So this is uh, featuring Devin Alexander and... Tom Pryor, ST Elements, and this is breed. This is the last stage of grieving, and this is acceptance.
7: Breathe into the pit of your soul And pump the miracle that you get to control Breathe, I know it gets hard sometimes Cause you're huffing and you're puffing on an uphill climb But breathe, and just don't give up on that Because I'll come along soon and I have your back your lungs, cause every single breath is a song being sung, so breathe, breathe into the pit of your soul, pump the miracle that you get to control, breathe, I know it gets hard sometimes, cause you're huffing and you're puffing on an uphill climb, but breathe, and just don't give up on that, because I'll come along soon, and I have your back.
9: Wow, what a huge uh difference between uh, between the first song and, and this last stage of grieving.
6: Yeah, yeah. It's uh is it interesting. So the song prior to that to more of the mo- uh more than a moment, um, you know, that was sort of in between uh bargaining and depression was where that song fell. And then this uh breathe, this last track there was uh is is the the last stage and that's acceptance. And that was that was the last song written. And I wasn't actually going to write that song. We, I thought I was done with the album and it was in February after we'd finished the Kickstarter. I was listening to the album and I thought, hey, that's, you know, it's pretty bleak. You know, I want to, uh, we got to end this on a high note and that's, that's consistent with uh, who my bro really is, you know. Is, he's an uplifting individual and, and loved to laugh and I thought uh, I, Devin had given me this beat and um, we just wrote on it and I thought, you know, it has got to feature my, my friend STL and Galen Alford, who I need to add, is the executive producer of the entire album and has taken them from tracks into songs. And that's really, Galen made the huge difference on on that track as well. Um, so, yeah, we wanted to leave people feeling great, like feeling optimistic, you know, and knowing, um, you know, you can lick your wounds for so long, but then they heal, right? And then you got you to gotta run off and, and do your thing. And, and uh, so that was important to us and important to my family that we... we We shine light that it's all about making a positive out of a negative, and uh, and that's where it's at.
9: Well, I couldn't imagine a a more fitting tribute. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Um, and I'm sure that will be a highlight uh, Thursday night at the Rio Theater. Yeah. Evidence of a struggle uh, CD release party, um, and I believe it starts 8 p.m. Show promptly at nine.
6: Yeah, that's correct. So we're, we're opening the doors at nine at the Rio Theater, and uh, DJ K-Rec will be spinning from eight to nine. Um, just uh, putting people at ease, welcoming people in. Uh, we got a great setup there, uh, the merch is looking fantastic, all done by uh, Aaron Salazar, a close friend of my big brothers and myself, um, a fantastic artist in uh, Victoria, BC right now, so he's designed uh, the clothes, the logos and uh, all that, so that'll be for sale at the Rio along with the album, which just was taken in today, just arrived today, so hot off the press.
9: And the, the Kickstarter, I was checking today, uh, as of today, 144 backers and I believe 11, just north of $11,000 mm-hmm. supported. Um, and just before we go, wh- where are the proceeds of the album going towards?
6: The proceeds from the album are directed to the Siegel Family Center at VGH, which is a beautiful facility, which is replacing the tired, outdated, existing facility at VGH. And it features family, it has family rooms, mm-hmm. gardening, Uh, a vocational component, uh, counseling, it's just a bright uh, facility that I think is really going to give this illness the service it deserves.
9: Well, a really important story, and and thank you for sharing it with us, driver.
6: Thank you for having me.
9: Oh, we're looking forward to, to the show on Thursday. Trevor Mills' Evidence of a Struggle CD release party takes place tomorrow at the Rio Theatre off Commercial Drive at about 8 p.m. It is Pay What You Can, and the album will be for sale. Now we've got a ticket giveaway, which is exciting. It's always nice to give tickets away. Uh, You, of course, are listening to The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. And um, if you like youth gospel choirs then you are in luck because good noise vancouver gospel choir is going to be joined by three local youth choirs in rise up singing a concert to kick off a young artist program so essentially uh, good noise vancouver gospel choir is starting a um, a youth music education program and to celebrate this they have a concert happening with youth gospel singers so uh, if you want a pair of tickets to this Saturday's um, Youth Gospel Choir performance, check out our Facebook page, which is the Arts Report. Um, at our, I think it's CITR Arts Report on our Facebook page, and you'll see a link for the Good Noise Vancouver Gospel Choir. And if you comment on that, um, you've got a chance of winning a pair of tickets. So um, enjoy it, because I think there's going to be... Um, tons of songs it's going to be from you know classic gospel favorites like this little heart of mine and r&b hip-hop songs Um, i think even some works by the doobie brothers and simon and garfunkel are going to find their way into that program so it'll be a really good concert and supporting this new youth music education program so check out our Facebook page and now we've got an exciting review. Um, God and in the Indian is a new play by Drew Hayden that discusses the impact of the residential school system in Canada. The play is at Firehall Arts until May 30th, and our very own Andy Tall went to check out the play. Welcome to the Arts Report, Andy. Thanks for having me. Well, tell us uh, tell us about the play.
3: Yeah, um, you know, the play is it's just a chance conversation between a former teacher and a student at, um, at a residential school about 30 years ago and it's, it's really simple in terms of staging just, just two actors on on one set, it's 80 minutes without intermission um, and ostensibly the play is about the residential school system in Canada, you know, a system in which native children were forcibly taken from their homes and put into schools administered by the Anglican Catholic churches it's fairly well documented at this point, the abuses many of these children faced, as well as the ways in which their language and culture was suppressed within these schools. Uh, but at the same time, th- there's a moment in the play, I think, which is very telling, in which one of the lead characters, um, a form- the former teacher, offers the other character, who was a student, a book that details the schools called um, the Canadian government and the residential school system. 1879 to 1986 and it's treated not quite with disdain exactly but but a kind of incredulity as if to say you think this is what we're looking for which says to me that on the one hand that this is not necessarily an academic account of what exactly happened and that this is not necessarily about the years 1879 to 1986 this is about the present moment you know, after all, the play does take place in the year 2000, which is less than five years after the last residential school was closed in Canada. Uh, it should be noted that while this, sub- this play does take its subject matter very seriously, you know, it also makes, not quite jokes, but I think bits about, you know, homelessness and, and poverty and, and abuse and and addiction but it's, it's in a way that's very bitter because, you know, in the, in the play, the only thing that stops you from, from crying is that you're laughing away some of these tears. Uh, there's some criticisms, I think, about the contrived nature of the play. You know, that this entire situation of a former teacher and student having this, this very charged conversation together in one room is, is very unrealistic, especially for such a sustained amount of time. Um, which, which, on one level, is fair, I think, but it seems to me missing the point that that the play is positing that it is only through such a contrived conversation that you know we can have a solution, a potential solution to those who deal with the legacy of the residential schools today
9: right on the the play has uh seen you know a, a lot of positive reviews maybe some some mixed reviews too what what was your general sense of
3: um how how you enjoyed it you know i liked it a lot it was um i mean when you when you hear the synopsis of such something like this you know it's it's about the residential school system in canada you come off oh this is going to be a very serious very dour dour play but it wasn't anything like that. At o- it was like that in some ways, but also there's a, there's a levity to to the viewing experience. There's a lot of laughter, um, even as the things that are being dealt with are extremely serious. You know, the
9: the context of its staging too is that, um, or, or part of the context at least is that this is in the wake of you know, the, well, in the midst of the Truth and Reconcilia- that's Reconciliation that's right. Reconciliation Committee. Um, there's also recently in in vancouver the previous um the head of Van Ock at the vancouver olympics uh john furlong is is in the middle of some legal troubles uh, about accusations um around some residential school things but w- what was the kind of atmosphere with the audience at the at the play
3: yeah that's interesting. Um. I think it's very somber. It was a very somber audience at first, but when you get into the play, um, it's hard not to, to laugh at some parts, even as you know that what you're laughing at is not something you necessarily would laugh at in a different context, in a, very, in a more uh, textbook or academic context. And it's something that you're being welcomed to. to yeah, to yeah, I, I think that. so. Yeah. Um, it does seem very deliberate on the playwright's part and even the direction and, and the acting
9: well um well, thank you very much for for checking out God in the Indian God in the Indian is playing at Fire hall Arts until may thirtieth and um what's the biggest case for for people to go see this play they've got a, a few more days
3: yeah um just it's on one hand mm-hmm. a very different way of experiencing the residential schools, not just reading a book but experiencing what happened after, right? The play does play, take place in 2000. It's, it's a very recent play in, in that way, right? But yeah, go see it. It's great.
9: Oh, right on. Uh, Andy Ta is an arts reporter for, for the Arts Report, and um, you will be hearing more of him in the upcoming weeks. Um, now we've got another interview for you, um, and more things for... For you to check out, um, Iris Apfel is a New York fashion icon who brings the values of a strong work ethic as well as um, probably a relentless sense of glamour to her working career that continues into her 90s. Um, she is the focus of a new film in, uh, titled Iris, which is directed by Iris Males, who recently passed away. Iris opens in Vancouver this Friday at Van City Theatre. And our um, arts, uh, one of our reporters, Sarah Barr, spoke over the phone recently with Rebecca Maisel's uh, daughter of the film's producer, Albert Maisel's. Uh, and here, of uh, here is that conversation.
10: Oh, am I gorgeous? You're gorgeous Iris.
1: <laughs> so rare bird herself, over seventy-five years of influence in fashion, interior design.
10: The icon, Iris Appel. That's so nice to hear. Makes a girl feel like there's still a chance. Albert's never done fashion people, or I'm really, I'm not a fashion person. And I was worried sick they would make me look like one, which I think wouldn't be a fate worse than death. I don't have any rules because I would only be breaking them, so it's a waste of time. I wanted to be me, and fashion is... I love very much, but it's just a small part of my life.
8: Iris is an artist. What she uses all of her
7: clothing and her accessories to do is compose a new vision.
10: I get more kick out of this. It costs $4 and change and if my husband took me to Harry Winston. It's not a dull marriage, I can tell you that. I think the segments with my husband were kind of fun. Their
9: fabric company had done a lot of work for administrations in the White House they
10: started improving. It we're not supposed to talk about the White House? They get very upset.: well, we had a problem with Jackie. Stop. <laughs> I first heard about uh, the project, and I really wasn't interested because I thought who would want to see a documentary about me? I could feel the pulse of her excitement about living. I really did it on blind faith because I didn't know what they were going to ask me, what I had to do. But they said they would be quiet and they would just sort of follow me around and I just left it all to them.
6: You know why I think you did this film? Why? Because he's very handsome and I think you,
10: you really had a crush on him. Everybody does. I know. It was like a magnet. Oh. My God. And I'm so happy that I was able to do this with Albert as his final piece. It kind of brought him back to the world and I, I know he was very he was very happy with it and so that pleased me no end
12: the latest film from the legendary documentarian Albert Maisel celebrates Iris Apfel the quick-witted flamboyantly dressed 93 year old style maven who has had an outsized presence on the New York fashion scene for decades Joining us today is Rebecca Mazels, the daughter of the late documentarian and an artist in her own right. Rebecca is one of the producers of the film and the current managing director of Mazels Films Inc. Rebecca, what was your role as one of the
13: producers of the film? Well, I think that the film itself is a kind of label of love between the, like a small crew of people that shared a lot of different hats, but for me, I think as a producer, kind of the way that I worked was to just kind of figure out where the gaps were and figure out how to fill them in and just to make everything kind of continue on and to make sure that we finished the project. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think it, you know had to do a lot of things, which, you know, could be from organizing shoots to organizing releases to organizing Al and Iris and then also kind of giving feedback for the editing process and then just kind of finishing the film and making sure that we got all the deliverables and kind of got it to the quality that we wanted Mm -hmm. but I would say that on Iris it was a film that was done by a crew of people who really loved the project and they loved working with Al and they loved working with Iris
4: so Mm -hmm.
13: it was a very you know it was very collaborative I mean Laura who kind of started the project, with Jennifer really, you know, everyone kind of shared, and, and, you know, there's three producers on it, whereas Jennifer introduced us to Iris, and then Mm -hmm. Laura and Al kind of really decided to make the film, and then I kind of came on to help pull it along and finish it.
12: Yeah, so you had a small, dedicated team then?
13: Yes, definitely.
12: Did you find it was challenging to have such a small team? Like, what were some of the challenges that you faced when making the documentary?
13: Oh, uh, I think it was challenging not to have money. Mm. I, mean, I think that's challenging. Yeah. That's challenging <laughs> to matter what do. Yeah. But I mean, I think that it's also hard with someone like my father, who I think everyone really imagined that it was very easy for him to get money for films. Mm-hmm. But that is definitely not the case. He was a phenomenal spirit and cameraman. But it, wasn't very, it was very difficult to raise money. Really? So I would say that that was, I think, the most challenging thing. I mean, I think that we were really lucky to have the crew that we had because a lot of, you know, everyone, you know, did things that I think that only a kind of close group of people would do. Mm-hmm. And so I loved having, I think having a small crew was amazing. I really wouldn't want it any, anywhere else. So I think that that was really nice. But I do think raising money was very difficult. And there's some logistics that are just hard and Al's schedule and Iris' schedule are very hectic and
4: mm-hmm.
13: you know but I think working with small crew is very helpful.
12: Yeah. Less people.
13: I can't imagine uh, needing a big crew. No.
12: Yeah.
13: <laughs> you know unless it's kind of, some kind of like concert thing or even that I don't know. I, I think it was funny because you, you know we did some things with Iris that were in kind of much more commercial settings mm-hmm. and it kind of blew people's mind that we could have such a small crew because they're yeah. so used to kind of having all these extras. Kind of convincing people, you know. Very rarely do we have a sound person. It's usually, you know, two cameras and that's it. And so I think kind of convincing people that that, mm-hmm. that we were very low impact was hard. And then when they would see us, they'd be like, oh, "Okay, you are actually." I mm-hmm.
12: so <laughs> just couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking about your father, he's documented some extreme characters in the past, like the Rolling Stones and Gimme Shelter, Big Edie and Little Edie and Great Gardens. What do you think it is about the peculiar that he was so drawn to?
13: I don't think he would say the peculiar. I mean, I think that he would say that he was interested in people, and he was interested in finding a kind of common ground or a common thread with people that you would not some people you would know and you would feel familiar to, or some people you wouldn't think that you would be familiar, but at the end of it, you actually did kind of recognize some things that you had in common. Mm -hmm. So I think that he was really open. Nothing was really peculiar to him, and if there was something peculiar, it would make him even more excited. (laughs) I don't think that he... He
12: wanted to explore. He got
13: excited about everything.
12: Yeah. (laughs) So your father, Albert, and your uncle, David, were founding members of direct cinema. Do you think direct cinema is more sacred now in the face of what we call reality
13: television? I think people practice it less. In my opinion, I think that documentaries have become much more commercial. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, yeah, I think that films have become more commercial. And I think that there's more and more of a formula for films. And although they, I think that they started off in this kind of fresh, really interesting world of inventors, you know, yeah. and they, we kind of invented what they did, and they invented the technology, you know, and they were all working together. They, they didn't have something, so they made it. Yeah. And I don't, I don't see that as much. and Maybe that's because I have a romantic idea of the past or whatever. But I think that they really invented something, and I think that I, you know, I go and I see film, and I think that they're just much more commercial, and there's. There's a recipe And there's a certain way You know There's a certain kind of camera That people use And there's a certain kind of editing And it's just become I don't know I mean, sometimes, Yeah It becomes predictable And sometimes you see gems And you get Really excited about it I mean I do think that That is what's really exciting To me at least About Iris And then my father finished Another film in transit And I think that they're both mm-hmm. Like Really beautiful films That are just about people They're yeah. kind of simple And they're not you know, with Iris, there's not like a major aha moment that happens, and mm-hmm. I don't think that my father really ever believed in that. He just believed that, you know, if you had these moments around you, then you could experience something. You know, yeah. and you could kind of join in. But I, yeah, I mean, my father and my uncle—they come from a different generation. I think,
4: but mm-hmm.
13: I, mean, I know what they do.
12: <laughs> <laughs> they have that natural curiosity.
13: I think that there's a lot of people that do have that now, you know, but I Mm -hmm. think that's in some ways, that's more difficult to market, and so it's more difficult for people to be able to survive doing those things.
4: That
12: is true. Well, your father and Iris met for the first time at the beginning of the filming process. How did they get along, and I want to know how were they similar?
13: I don't think that they would have made the film if they didn't get along. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't think there would have been a point, because I don't think, you know, both processes take a leap of faith, Mm -hmm. you know, and and Iris trusted him and he trusted that he would be able to work on it and somehow, you know, raise money for it and stuff. So I think that if they didn't get along, they wouldn't have done it because they both had to, you know, kind of volunteer a lot of their time for Mm -hmm. it in that type of way in their spirit. So they got along and I think that they enjoyed being around each other. They enjoyed watching each other work. Mm -hmm. And I think that Iris had the faith that she had heard enough about Al that she thought he would, you know, do a good job. And he had heard enough about her that thought that she would be interesting and fun to kind of just watch work and do her... Do their Do thing. what she did. Yeah. So I think... And he would always say, you know, we just want to watch you being you.
12: hmm <laughs> You know. So what have you taken away from working with your father? Not everyone gets the chance to work with someone in that capacity. I
13: mean, I think I... I learned a lot about being adventurous and about being open being patient you know I mean I really i have been on shoots with my father where it's been a really crummy situation and he's been the last to complain mm-hmm. you know and I just think that that's really admirable I mean there's a spirit that he has that I don't think many people have and just being able to be around that is you know I miss it dearly and there isn't really anyone like that I don't think and I, I had a lot of fun and I I love working with him, and I love, you know, the people that he worked with, that he really enjoyed working with, you know, I mean, I never got to really know my uncle, but I know this new wave of people that came from working with him, like Laura and Sean and Nelson, and it's just, I think it's a really wonderful family that kind of, like, learned a lot from him and respected him, and that he respected, I mean, I think mm-hmm. he was really happy to be working with the people that he was working with, and... I don't think that you usually have that situation, especially with someone who kind of has a prestige like he did. He was open to anything, you know, and I, I really didn't have an ego about him. And neither did Iris, you know. And she still doesn't after doing all this press and doing mm-hmm. everything that she does. I mean I think she's very patient about it and enjoys it.
12: Yeah. She seems like a real hoot. Yeah, she is. <laughs> Okay, well, that's awesome. Uh, what advice would you give to aspiring filmmakers?
13: Well, I heard this. I heard this quote that I can't take responsibility for. but I heard Tony Baker on the radio. They asked him what advice he would give, mm-hmm. and he said, "I can't say it's perfect, really? it, but he said make sure to have a good breakfast and hope for the best." <laughs> and I was that's like, you can do. "That's totally right." <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I would just think do what you want to do and just figure out how to do it. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of different creative ways that you can figure out how to do things that are important to you. Yeah. So whether it's by, like, making work, it's not easy and it's a lot of work, but I think that there are ways to do it. And I think that that is what's really nice about, you know, the film is that you watch, you know, you see a little bit of Al, but you watch a lot of Iris kind of making the decisions she wants because she's a strong world Individual and mm-hmm. I think, especially being a woman, and and it's really inspiring. You yeah. know, to, she did what she wanted to do, and she's still doing it.
3: The Bar Hall Art Center's "God and the Indian" explores one of Canada's darkest chapters: the residential school system.
0: Celebrated playwright Drew Hayden Taylor's Black Humor illuminates this heartbreaking story
3: of a Cree woman who cannot escape her past. On from May 20th to 30th. See firehallartcenter.ca for details.
14: Hello, Arts Reporter listeners. My name is Christine Kim. I'm a theater correspondent for the Arts Report. And today we have Jay Dodge on the line, the artistic producer um, for Boca de Lupa. Hi, Hi, Jay.
8: Hi, how are you doing?
14: Pretty good. How are you?
8: Not too bad. A little tired.
14: (laughs) Um, Tired from getting prepared for the new production of Big Bad?
8: Yeah, but that's yeah, we were actually we opened two shows uh, that were both uh part of the children's festival um yesterday. So seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh but yeah, no it's good. There, it's, it's been a lot of fun and uh yeah, Big Bad is one of them and then I think I can uh a group from Australia that we are uh co-presenting uh, as well.
14: Mhm. And I think I can premieres tomorrow, correct?
8: No, it well, sorry, yes. Yes and no. It um we're doing it for, we started it um, on Tuesday for, for kids during the day, and then uh, tomorrow we start the adult uh, version of it as well as part of our micro-performance series where there's also alcohol involved
14: <laughs> that sounds like it's going to be a lovely time and now, yeah it's pretty fun <laughs> for all of our listeners who uh, are not familiar with who you are jay um jay is a writer performer producer dramaturge and designer he's won um several awards including the peer assessed alkin performing arts award awards and several jesse richardson theater awards and now you guys have um, Big Bad, which is a contemporary take on little Red Riding Hood, um, so my first question to you, Jay, um, about Big Bad is what you 're hoping to achieve in retelling a new version of a classic fable what do you um, what kind of elements do you hope to highlight by straying from the classic retelling of little Red Riding Hood
8: well uh, to be to be uh, to be honest I guess we uh, we didn't really start with uh Wanting to necessarily retell uh, a fairy tale or Little Red Riding Hood in particular, but um, Sherry and I, who's she's the artistic director and um, and uh, longtime collaborator and partner in many ways, um, we were trying to figure out. I think it was a number of years ago that the Children's Festival asked us if uh, if we would like to do something there and maybe that we could work together in some kind of commissioning relationship. and And it took us a while to wrap our heads around what we would do for for kids for a theater for young audiences mm-hmm. um and um and what we had decided you know and uh, in the interim we actually had some children you know is that there's this kind of complex question about identifying danger in the modern world and that you know it feels like maybe it used to be easier and uh even though it's statistically safer now um it uh, it doesn't feel that way, you know. When I was mm. a kid, it was, you know, come home when the street lights come on. And now that I have kids, if I if I did that with them, you know, with my five-year-old, then, you know, I think probably child services would come and take me away in handcuffs. So, uh, so we we were we looked we we're looking for kind of a vehicle that um, would help us explore that, explore that issue and. And as we thought about it, you know, if you think about the story of Little Red Riding Hood, it really operates on two levels, depending on if you're a child or an adult. And I think, you know, as an adult, it's, you know, the overtones of a child predator, that kind of idea, immediately come to light as what, uh, uh, except with, you know, with kids, it's obviously completely different. It's a story that's, I mean, it's scary in some ways because it's a wolf, but but you don't think of it uh, on that metaphorical level.
14: Right. Right. um, And... As you were just talking about the different levels that appeal to a child audience and an adult audience, um, how easy and or difficult was it navigating um, and kind of directing Big Bad in such a way that it appeals to the younger audiences but also appeals to all of the parents that are going to be there? Was it kind of... um, already laid out for you since Little Red Riding Hood already has both those levels or did you um, include maybe humor or other aspects that you hoped would um, target uh, that kind of dual audience um, at the same time?
8: Yeah, we, um, we've done a fair bit of all ages work and, but this is the first piece where, yeah, for sure there's parents and teachers there, um, Mm -hmm. but a little bit more leaning towards, you know, the kids and, and, um, you know, it's a challenge. Like, you know, I really respect uh, artists that are making you know, work for, for kids and, and aiming for that TYA audience. It's, um, you know, we've learned a lot along the way and, and in some ways are continuing to learn uh, as we see the audiences come through. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I think in the past, uh, when I think of our the more intergenerational work that we've done in the past, uh, we, typically it was larger uh, outdoor, um, you know, works of, of scale. And, you um, and the balance was, was different. It was mostly adults and, you know, maybe it was, I don't know, 75% adults and 25% kids. And right. in this situation, it slipped around. You know, it's like mostly kids, like 75% kids and 25% adults. And, and um, I mean, uh, w- what our goal for sure was, was not to pander, you know, not to uh, make uh, choices that um, we wouldn't make for an adult audience. You know, we didn't want to speak down to the kids. Um, and at the same time, I think when we were working together with, uh, with our creative team, you know, we, um, we wanted to make sure that, uh, yeah, there, there were things that, as we talk about them, you know, there's some, there's one real pretty obvious allusion to this idea of, you know, the wolf having a restraining order and and shouldn't be in that part of the forest because of the wolf's appetites. And I don't think that most kids will understand that language as an adult would, you know, so, whether it's a whether it's a more you know serious moment or funnier moments, we definitely did try to to um, to speak to both audiences and and you see it happen. You know, you see some of the stuff the kids are laughing, some of the stuff for adults are laughing. They're not, you know, some of them they're both laughing at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, we'll we'll uh, I think to uh, to a large degree we we're managing to ride that line, although it is a bit of a tricky one for sure. <laughs>
14: And I uh, also read that uh, in Big Bad, there's elements of interactive technology. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about uh, what that looks like on stage, and, and whether or not you, um, uh, whether or not you guys included the interactive technology for mostly the benefit of the kids, or maybe both audiences?
8: Yeah, I think it was. Um you know, as well, we went into some classrooms before we um as part of the process of developing the piece. And, you know, you realize or we realize that you know, a lot of these kids in grades sort of grade one to four, I guess. And um, when we ask them about some of the subject matter about like what, what, what they think of as dangerous mm-hmm. and you know, what are they afraid of, those kinds of things. And and the examples that they're giving are across the board. Like they're pretty indiscriminate about whether it's Something that's from the internet or a video game or whether it's the forest or the dark or something from their imagination, like a monster under the bed and and we realized that um you know that with uh, with kids I mean they really do have a facility to move between uh all these different um you know ways of engaging with the world with 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 an ease um that is, uh, you know, perhaps different than, than the generation before. And and then uh, and over the years, we've also been interested in different kind of multimedia stuff. And, and so we thought, well, let's just, uh, let's bring whatever, uh, whatever tools, you know, in terms of technology uh, into the piece that mm-hmm. uh, we felt served that particular scene. You know, so uh, the woodsman, for instance, he plays a character that's a little bit bumbling and, and uh you know he's supposed to know his way around the forest and so we you know we basically we gave him a selfie stick and <laughs> and he sort of gets lost and goes on an impossibly long journey that takes him outside of the theater and out to you know lighthouse park and the art gallery like he obviously part of that's filmic right mm-hmm. um but you know we just sort of used it um in ways that made sense to have a bit of fun uh with uh with the audience as well as um as just sort of cast aside um the usual boundaries of, of what would be a theater.
14: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And do you find that directing this play for uh, a modern, I guess, younger audience that's so, um, that's so entrenched in multimedia, was it difficult um, thinking of ways to entertain the audience and keep them kind of in focus? Um, it m- might not be so much so with the adults, but um, especially when you were... Thinking about how to make this play um, entertaining for a younger audience.
4: Hmm.
14: Yeah, it is, it is a bit
8: of a trick. I mean, we want we we're trying to figure out a way to not be too preachy or uh, have a ton of exposition. Uh, keep it entertaining, um, yeah, of course, right? But at mm-hmm. the same time, not just playing for laughs. And hopefully, uh, spend a bit of time. You know, like take a moment, like. To be scared, uh, or to you know, to to create a scene that's a little bit scary, and and um, you know, because what what other place other than theater like that's that's a safe place to explore these ideas of fear and danger and that kind of thing, and hopefully leave the audience, uh, both kids and adults, with a little bit of vocabulary around um, around these things that are a little bit hard to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, it's yeah, it is. It is a bit of a trick, you know, and, it, and it's really Sherry, you know, directing the work and and trying to work with the actors to ride that line, to not give in to this idea that you always want to play for the laugh,
4: mm-hmm. you know, and
8: not be afraid for the room to be quiet a little bit and have people come to the edge of their seat and and be, you know, build up that tension and, and before you let it go. So... You know, I don't know. Were we successful with it 100% of the time? I don't know. I think we're still trying to figure it out. It's a premiere. You know, Mm -hmm. we've only had two shows of this work. And uh, I think we'll continue to try to find that um, as we we move forward with it.
14: Right, right. That sounds, um, I think that was a really good point about uh, kind of playing up that tension in the room and um, writing that line where it is entertaining and very memorable, but uh, not too, I guess, scary. Um, And kind of on the same lines, um, but moving more towards um, talking a bit about uh, Boca Boca del Lupo. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah,
8: Boca del Lupo, you got it.
14: Boca del Lupo. Um, I know Boca del Lupo is very big on new creations and new productions. Um, So... In this kind of day and age where new things um, become old in a matter of days and there's quite a high turnover rate um, on what's in and what is, isn't, mm-hmm. I was wondering is it difficult to keep up as a modern theatrical company that prides itself on making new creations and and being very contemporary?
8: Yeah, I. I that's a, it's a good question. It's a good point and an interesting observation. Uh, on a I mean, yes. Yeah, I guess sometimes it's exhausting, but you know, we don't really, we don't necessarily think, okay, we're gonna make the next. We we want to, we, we need to stay innovative. We need to stay inventive. I mean, mm-hmm. the conversation is more about our what we're inspired by and what different elements or different uh, artists that we want to work with and what that might look like. And and I think, I think for for me, and I think probably for our whole team, and it's really. More about the fact that there is—it's um, more about the fact that there's um, that we get bored easily, <laughs> you know, in some ways, and so we always, you know, want to, you know, move on to the to the next thing and, mm-hmm. and uh, make something. And but I have to say, you know, the longer that you know, we've done this, and we've probably made—we've been doing this for almost 20 years—and made I think over 40 new works. I do find myself actually wanting to stay with work longer,
4: hmm.
8: and you know, taking a more kind of iterative approach to creating work. So you know, maybe you create a, create pieces that that you can build upon them, um, you know, and, and revisit them and improve upon them, or you know, rethink them in different in different ways. And so that's um that's yeah that's kind of where we're at with that. You know, I mm-hmm. I I think if you, in my opinion. You know, if you're just trying to stay relevant by, you know, trying to be inventive or like kind of you know pull things out of the air, um, I think that can be uh, that's hard. It's a hard place Mm -hmm. to put yourself in. I think, you know, you have to follow your inspiration, or I feel like you have to follow my inspiration, and then hope that not. You know, it's not that we don't have a relationship and and a conversation with our audiences and. Have some sense of what people are interested in. Obviously, obviously we spent a long time developing our craft, but but I think you also just you know have to follow your own instincts, I guess, and interest and inspiration as an artist as much as you do have to worry about those external forces that are in many ways beyond our control.
14: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And right, like that being said. Um do you mind giving uh the arts report listeners a bit of an exclusive on where you think uh Bocco del lupo is going to be heading next? what kind of productions you have in the works right now um, <laughs> who you guys are already talking to in terms yeah, of uh um, sure yeah, yeah. sure no, I'd
8: be happy to um well our we're uh, our next thing, I guess, and it's still very much um you know, we're st- we still don't know exactly what it's going to look like, mm-hmm. but we do know that we're going to be working on a collaboration with a company from Ireland called the Performance Corporation. Wow! Um, and they were—we met them at, uh, in Montreal back in 2007, and we had very much uh, had a lot of a lot in common with them. They're sort of very similar to us both the type of work they made in the past and sort of where they're heading. And um, and it took us a while, but I think we figured out something that we want to do together, and and um, And it's loosely based on this idea of of historical pre-enactment. I think there's a comic book artist that coined the phrase, which is Mm. just kind of this idea of thinking, imagining yourself 100 100 years or 150 years in the future and then looking back on present day and, and, you know, uh, like Civil War reenactment, that kind of thing, right? Everybody dresses up like they were from, you know, the Civil War in the United States, the North and the South, and they reenact battles. Mm-hmm. Well, so, so it's a little bit of a mental brain exercise to imagine yourself 150 years in the future and then try to reenact the present day. And like, I, I suppose there's a lot of uh, potential, you know, ironies and misconceptions about what we, what, what people from the future might have thought we used certain objects for, for instance,
4: or, mm-hmm.
8: uh, but on a more, you know, on a more serious note, I think it's also about um, gaining some, some, Wisdom of hindsight, in some ways, premature wisdom of hindsight, by imagining yourselves in the future and looking back on present day and saying, "Well, you know, if we could say that, if you will use the Civil War for example, you know that was all about slavery, right?" And I mm-hmm. think we can pretty much say now, definitively, that slavery is wrong, right? But in that time, it, that's it was a it was a question, right? It was a it was there. Was, obviously, it was a it was a war there because peop, some people thought that it was okay,
4: mm-hmm.
8: and and I think that there. Ethically, I think there's probably, and and you know you can read about this if you look at look at you know notions of progressive or evolutionary ethics. You know there are there are likely things today that people 150 years from now will look back upon as ethically abhorrent.
4: Mm-hmm. And
8: what would those things be? I don't know what they will be, right? I mean, uh, I'm a meat eater, but will it be? You know, will that be you know, eating animals? Will that be looked back on as being ethically abhorrent or? I don't know. Who knows? Who knows what will be? Plastic. I, you know, those are the obvious ones. But then I think there's sort of there's some more nuanced ideas that could be explored with that as well. So so we'll be going to, to uh, just outside of Dublin this summer and starting kind of uh, more concrete work on that with the Performance Corporation.
14: Wow, that sounds very um, intriguing. And I really do look forward to um, hearing more about that in, I guess, the upcoming months. Um I guess just talking a little bit, um, because I know, uh, I I promised you this interview would only be 20 minutes, um, Mm -hmm. that you were working on something called the Progress Lab 1422. Mm -hmm. And um, it's been recently updated to have more equipment and more areas. And basically, it's just the space to create um, Mm -hmm. for different um, artists and um, actors. Um, And I wanted to know your thoughts on, I guess, how important such buildings and such spaces are um, to nurturing more of the art scene in Vancouver and whether or not it was a very difficult process to um, continue driving because of the lack of funding or if there was, I guess, a difficulty in obtaining funding donors.
8: Right, yeah. Well, we we um we refer to the space as PL 1422, and mm-hmm. it's over. It's just off Commercial Drive, sort of kitty corner to the backfield of Britannia there. And um, and how it came to be, how it came to be, is that there was four theater companies. Boco de Lupo was one of them, and Electric Company, and Rumble, and New World, and and um, we were part of a larger group that had produced the among other things, produced these uh, series of events called Hive, and then after that, Obstructions. And of that group, there was uh, our four companies were kind of—I don't know. I guess in some we were on the most stable footing, probably. I guess is the best way to describe it. And and so we thought, you know, we'd spent we were spending uh, a fair bit of money each year on the office space, rehearsal space, and uh, and that kind of thing.
4: Mm-hmm.
8: And uh, and often we're unsatisfied with the type of rehearsal space that we were in. So, like, say ourselves or maybe the electric company had a show that incorporated a bunch of technology and, you know, we'd have a hard time finding a place where we could leave that technology set up overnight, wouldn't have to clear it every night and put it back. And and, and so we came together and basically said, well, what if we pooled all our resources and um, and uh, leased our own space? And so, you know, in answer to part of your question there, I mean, in order to rent the space, and it is a leased space, we don't own it, but... Um, we didn't actually have to contribute much more than we were already spending
4: mm-hmm.
8: um and you know we we are four companies that are fortunate enough to be on operating status with the various arts councils and whatnot but but we we didn't have to you know spend any more than we already were more or less you know right. to keep the to keep the doors open and then um and then as a result uh, we were able to you know yeah apply for funding for capital improvements and 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 as a result i think we yeah what we have there is Definitely, you know, uh, offices, but also a studio space that is probably as well equipped, or, or uh, you know, as any um, as anything in English-speaking Canada in terms of, uh, of a, a rehearsal hall and rehearsal and development space. And uh, and yeah, you know, I think it has probably changed the the quality or the type of work that our four companies, and then of course the other companies that. Um, that are able to use the space as well, because we do, you know, try to rent it out fairly affordably to other, other groups. Um, you know, I think it has changed the quality of the work, like both in, you know, because you can, like I said, you don't, you don't have to necessarily strike everything every night, you know, and it does have a sprung floor and you can do experiments with lighting or video or that kind of thing right in the rehearsal hall instead of having to clear it. Uh, clear it every night and and so i think it's enabled us to dream in a different way or or uh, create in a different way having having control over our space like that i think it's quite important and and yeah and it's but it is it's it's a tough city for that obviously
4: Mm -hmm, you know
8: mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to real estate and that kind of stuff but but i also do think that you know there are people you know at the city of vancouver and other places that are that are that are Actually, working really hard to try to figure out a way that that there is space and remains there remains a space in the city for artists to create. Because uh, I, I, it sure would be sad if if um, if you know certain types of people. Obviously, we know the arts. We don't make as much money, right? You know, it we does maybe don't work as hard, uh, but we're passionate about what we do, and and um, but we're not making you know big salaries, uh, mm. perhaps like in other industries, and and but I think that it's the arts are a vital part of the city, and I think the city would be poorer for it. And um, and not just the arts. I mean, any not-for-profits, frankly, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, I think having space is, is crucial for, for all those reasons.
14: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, just reading about, um, yeah, the PL 1422, I really appreciated what you guys uh, were doing. Um, and thank you so much, uh, Jay, for uh, conducting this interview with me um, today. I just want to give a reminder to all of our arts reporter listeners that Big Bad will be playing from uh, the 26th to the 31st at Granville Island. Uh, tickets are $25 per adult and $15 per child. And before I let you go, Jay, do you want to just give a, um, uh, maybe a quick uh, sentence or two about uh, why our listeners should come out to see the play?
8: Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great cast. Um, you know of uh, folks up on the stage so it's a, I think it's a delightful performance um, it's multifaceted like i say there's there's a paper artist that was involved in creating it a filmmaker a new music composer and um, you know it's a, it's a lot of fun I think uh, and it's also um, it's also important I think you know every every child and adult uh, you know relate we, for our children we want we want them to be able to engage with the world and not be afraid of the world and yet it's our job as parents and guardians and aunts and uncles and all those things to also make sure that our kids don't get hurt. And so I think uh, Big Bad is like a fun and entertaining and interesting way to to uh have a shared vocabulary so that as you're going forward we can, you know, find ways of talking about those things.
14: Great. Thank you so much, Jay.
8: Oh, it's been a pleasure talking to you.
14: All right. Uh and there you have it, Arts Reporter listeners. I think we're going to be ending off the show. Um, would you like to?
9: Well, Christine, thank you for that interview for sure. Um, right before we go, we've, uh, we've had a lot of support with some new arts reporters this week. And um, Jacob, I think, is going to just give us a quick preview of what he's going to be sharing with us next week. Hi there everyone, I hope everyone's enjoying this
2: wonderful uh, day full of beautiful sunshine in beautiful British Columbia and beyond, wherever you may be joining us from. And so it's really getting to that summery part of year and uh, there's lots of different events going on around the city. Uh, just last night I got a chance to check out the Tame Paula concert, uh, that is of course the Australian indie psychedelic rock band. Um, And a couple of days before that, I had the opportunity to check out the Vox Humana Chamber Choir over at the Holy Trinity Anglican Church. And so I'll be doing a little bit of a review on that on next week's show. But just a couple of uh, other events that will be happening in the city over the next uh, few weeks um, and in the coming months. So there's, of course, Jamie XX, who is, of course, the British producer and member of the indie rock band The XX. He will be performing July 23rd at the Commodore Ballroom and this will be uh, promoting his latest album, In Color, which I believe uh, came out a couple of days ago. There will be Post Malone, who is the latest buzzing hip-hop, R&B sort of artist, and he will be performing June 12th at Republic. And in cinema news, um, as part of the Vancouver International Film Festival, the movie Dior and I will be screening May 30th at 8 p.m. and May 28th, at four thirty p.m. And so this movie sort of chronicles the behind-the-scenes events um, at the infamous Christian Dior fashion house. And the movie also follows the influential Belgian fashion designer Raf Simmons who actually took over as the creative director at Dior in 2012. So lots happening in the city. Um, I look forward to appearing on the show again next week. Thanks a lot, Jake, for having me.
9: Oh, uh, you're welcome. We're looking forward to your review of the Chamber Choir next week. Um, All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. If uh, you have anything to say about what you heard, feel free to give us an email at arts at citr.ca. If you'd like to get involved, uh, email us at the same spot, arts at citr.ca. Next week in this time, from 6 to 6.30, a new show called Sharing Science is going to be in the spotlight. So keep an eye out for that An ear, I suppose. And stay tuned.